welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth and Soups. I have used these products for years and I always keep my pantry well stocked. They have chicken bone broth, beef bone broth, and a new chicken mushroom bone broth, which is delicious. Those are all great as a base for soups or even just sipped on their own. But Kettle and Fire also now has tomato, butternut, and miso soups, which are often incorporated as part of a meal in our house. Their newest products are a grass-fed chili and a Thai chicken soup. These are great meals all on their own, and they make last-minute dinner so easy at my house. Their broths are made from grass-fed and pastured animal bones, and they're a great source of collagen and amino acids like proline and glycine. I incorporate collagen in some form every day, and Kettle and Fire makes it super tasty to do this. You can learn more. Go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama20 to save 20% on your order. So again, Kettle and Fire, all spelled out K-E-T-T-L-E-A-N-D-F-I-R-E.com forward slash wellnessmama and make sure to use the code wellnessmama20 to save 20%. This podcast is brought to you by the best CBD I have ever tried and the one that I feel is truly the best out there. It's called Ojai Energetics, spelled O-J-A-I, Energetics, and here's why it's awesome. First of all, it is over 20 times more absorbable than most CBD, which makes it an incredible value. Over 99% of Ojai CBD gets where it needs to go in your body because of their patented colloidal technology, which is not liposomal like 90% of the CBD on the market. And in fact, 90% of the CBD in these liposomal oils don't even make it past the gut and liver and into the blood. This is called the first pass effect. Then 90% of the CBD that does make it through isn't in the right form to be available to the cells that need it. Ojai solves this problem with their colloidal system. I was skeptical and I have to tell you the first time I tried it, I felt a noticeable, like very noticeable effect in about 15 seconds, which is so much faster than the 20 to 30 minutes with other brands I've used. So now whenever I feel any stress or anxiety or have trouble sleeping, I use it and solve that problem in under 20 seconds. Their CBD is derived from completely organic ingredients and it's batch tested by third-party vendors, which is important for heavy metals, VOCs, pesticides, herbicides, microbes, and to verify the content of terpenes and cannabinoids. Because this version absorbs faster, you can also know if you're getting the right dose because taking too much CBD is not a good thing either. Here's how. Because Ojai works so rapidly, it causes your body's cannabinoid receptors in the tongue to modulate. Big words, but what this means is that the CBD will taste bitter when your body needs more CBD, but will change to sweet when you've had enough. So to test it, all you have to do is take only a quarter of a dropper, wait 30 seconds, and then feel on your tongue if you taste bitter or sweet. If it tastes bitter, you just repeat until you get a sweet, almost honey-like taste. Ojai is also a certified B Corp, which means they operate their servers off of wind power, they use completely recyclable packaging, they work to build direct relationships with the farmers who grow the ingredients they use, which ensures fair trade wages, and they support regenerative regenerative farming practices. Find out more about them and their mission and get a special gift with your order by going to ohaienergetics.com forward slash wellness mama. So again, O-J-A-I energetics.com forward slash wellness mama.
Hey, welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. This is Heather. And I'm Katie. And today we're going to talk about lessons learned from Finland in a recent trip there and specifically go through some of the benefits I think that all of us can take away in our modern life, even if we're not going to be in Finland. I'm so excited about this podcast because even though we live close to each other, I've basically been following on along on Instagram and haven't really gotten yet to hear about your trip. So this is going to be fun. So yeah, so I'll kind of the basically the background of the trip. If you guys listen to the episode I did with Taro Isakapala from Four Sigmatic in the summer, uh, I interviewed him. I've interviewed him twice now, once about his book, Santa Soul Shrooms, and once in the summer about mushrooms and their many benefits. And it's something I'm super fascinated by. I know that you're also really fascinated by mushrooms and what they can do for our bodies. And after that interview, I just kept asking him questions. And he's like, hey, do you want to go on a trip to Finland and actually see where these come from and learn about them. And it was the summer. It was super hot here. So I was like, yeah, of course, sign me up. And then the details started coming in that it was going to be in January, which is the coldest time of the year in Finland and not just Finland, but Northern Finland in Lapland in basically the Arctic Circle, like across the line of the Arctic Circle. And at that point, I realized I don't own a single piece of clothing that is appropriate for the Arctic Circle and started researching that. But the details just kept rolling in of what we would be learning and kind of how we would be getting to immerse in the Finnish culture. So if you're familiar with Four Sigmatic, it's a Finnish-founded company that now is also in California, and their mission is to bring mushrooms to the U.S. and to get the U.S. people in the U.S. to consume these healthy medicinal mushrooms on a daily basis. And in Finland, when they first started, they actually did this with teas. So they would make combinations of tea mixed with these mushrooms, and people loved it. And then they realized when they came to the U.S., nobody was really interested in that. And it's because um, they realized the perception here is that tea is already healthy, even though not all teas are healthy at all, but Americans already think of tea as pretty healthy. Um, So they didn't really feel like they needed to upgrade their tea. Whereas um, most Americans, the majority of Americans drink coffee and most of them report wanting to reduce their coffee consumption, but very few people actually want to quit coffee. And so they realized that mushrooms were a great way to help people do that because they can make coffee that was less caffeine, but more energy. And they could use mushrooms and adaptogens to get rid of the jitters and some of the acidity that comes with coffee. So that's how they got their start in the U.S., And this trip was a chance to go to Finland and see where different mushrooms like chaga and reishi and cordyceps are sourced and also to just learn about the Finnish culture. And specifically in this Arctic region, there's a population called the Sami, which uh, Taro wrote about a lot in his book, Santa Sold Shrooms, which is a really funny read. Um, But they are an indigenous tribe that's lived there for thousands of years and survived in this extreme cold long before electricity and everything we have now, and they still have kept a lot of their culture. So that was part of the thing I was most excited to see because, you know, we always hear in health research about these indigenous tribes and everyone loves to quote these indigenous tribes that supposedly do all of these things. And I wanted to see what one of them was actually like and do they really live like that Um, and to just get a a feeling for the culture. I know um, both of us love travel and I think that's one of the priceless gifts of travel is getting to experience another culture and another way of life. Absolutely. And it's funny because not on purpose, but I was reading one of Tara's other books whose name I cannot remember right now, um, but it's about just medicinal mushrooms. It's an introduction to a lot of them and how to use them in food and then also for like skincare some and some pretty cool applications. But just in reading that, I was amazed by how much knowledge there is about the uses and almost the the specific personalities of each of these mushrooms and how they really they draw out things from 
us and they have balancing properties like that help us adapt to different situations. And it's not really surprising when you think about it that they're adaptogens because adaptogens help our bodies adapt to stress. And I really can't think of anything that is more intense than being in the Arctic Circle, (laughs) especially in some of the situations that you're going to tell us about, which I'm so excited to hear about. But yeah, it's been, I'm I'm really excited to hear what you learned. So why don't you just start us uh, with wherever you want to, like what was the first uh, thing that you noticed uh, in your time there? Yeah, it was one of those from the beginning, um, almost just surreal experiences. I think anytime we're out of our comfort zone, to a pretty extreme degree, we are in a unique position to learn. So it started off for me with over two days of straight of travel. So uh, and crossing 10 time zones, which is the most I'd ever crossed. And there's a lot we can talk about just on jet lag and time zones and adapting to that. And then when we got there, pretty much immediately, we jumped into dog sledding on the first night, which is something I had definitely never experienced. And um, I mean, these dogs can go, I think like 25 or 30 miles an hour. They can go pretty fast in the snow and just, and then you're still, cause you're standing or sitting on the sled while the dogs run and how biting the colds can be. Uh, we weren't quite, I don't think any of us who are from like warm regions were prepared for that. Um, just how much it like goes through any amount of clothing that you're wearing, especially when it was in the negative thirties and almost negative 40 at that point. And then we slept in these igloos that we expected to be cold. And ironically, they got super hot. So at night we were at like 85 and during the day we were at negative 30 and our bodies were quite confused. Um, but the first day was dog sledding and, and some of the travel. And then the next day, um, we got to go foraging for chaga mushrooms. And like you mentioned about mushrooms being adaptogens, I was shocked that they still are available to find in the winter. That they, I mean, it makes sense, but they not only survive in the cold, but that's part of what gives them their beneficial properties. And so um, the majority of the mushrooms that we consider medicinal actually grow on trees. People don't always realize that um, they don't grow on the ground and Again, before I say this, I should say I'm not a doctor or a botanist or anything else that would be qualified to give this as advice. So don't go eat any mushrooms without checking with all of those people. But um, the way Taro explained it, most medicinal mushrooms grow on trees and very few of the mushrooms that grow on trees are dangerous. Um, I think if I'm remembering only one species that grows on trees is actually dangerous and um, most of the dangerous ones grow on the ground. He also said that in the U.S. there's relatively few species that are truly dangerous. I think it was maybe 20 of which four are common. So in general, mushrooms are mostly safe. And I think if we um, put in the time to learn about them and learn about sourcing them, we could probably actually wild forage even in our own environments um, here. But there we were looking for chaga specifically, which grows on birch trees. And um, you basically like scrape the snow off and you're looking for trees that are starting to die but haven't fallen yet. And they have these like dark black things like chaga and reishi and you can find these on the trees. And so we were like traipsing for several hours, traipsing through thigh deep snow to find these. And at first I was like, oh, it'll be like walking through sand. It is not in fact like walking through sand. It's really hard. And if you fall, you almost can't get up very easily because you're now like under snow and there's nothing to push up against. So you have to kind of like fall backwards and squat at the same time to stand up. And it was really, really humorous. We all kept like pushing each other down forward. So it was like dominoes down the line. Um, and one of the guys on the trip is a UFC fighter. And I almost like pushed him down from behind. I was like, I was going to kick out his knee. And then I was like, mm, maybe not kick the UFC fighter. That's not a good plan. 
Uh, I was just going to say, the thing that makes this so much fun for me is knowing that you and I live near the ocean, and so do most of the people who are on this trip with you. So this is, you guys are totally out of your element. Um, But the chaga mushrooms and the reishi, what I love about this is that what you're describing is these, these mushrooms that are thriving in an extreme environment. And it's so easy to call or slap the superfood label on anything. Um, but there is something really special and unique about these plants that can thrive in extreme environments. They develop properties to, in order to do that, that also can convey a lot of benefits to humans. So I'm pretty impressed that you were able to forage for them. And after reading Tara's book, I started looking for a local mycological society did I say that? Mycological society. There you go. Because I want to forage and not just because I'm sure I could go find them at the local health food store or whatever, or in dried form. I've used them to make tinctures, but this is, I mean, life is about creating these experiences and appreciating and connecting to where these things come from. So um, that is on my bucket list now. Um, you're a little ahead of me on this one, but um, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to follow up on this and, and do it also. So I'm excited. I love that. Yeah, definitely something we can get our kids involved in as well. I think we can learn so much from our environments wherever we are. Uh, And I think mushrooms grow almost everywhere. That's something Taro talked about is how there's like a mushroom, a mycelium mat under, I believe, part of Utah that is like acres, thousands of acres big underground and just actually also how much DNA we share with mushrooms, which is shocking to realize like we're pretty similar to them and they have a lot of things that are beneficial to us because of that. Um, So we, we, yeah, forage for mushrooms. One thing I will to add is that he pointed out how many pharmaceuticals are based on mushroom extracts. Like they're not just used in like therapeutic or integrative applications. They are being used to make medicines. So that's pretty interesting. And that's a great point, too, because so a lot of the mushrooms, we actually got to see where they forage for a lot of these. And like the reishi and chaga, for instance, I think it was the reishi that comes largely from Siberia and from this Arctic region. So it's wild grown like wild found forage mushrooms which is really rare to find also they the ones that they grow they grow in a natural environment using the natural methods because sometimes mushrooms are grown on uh, I think like sawdust or GMO corn or all kinds of different growing mediums that then are not producing just like if you grew vegetables in a non-optimal soil you wouldn't get the same nutrient profile you're not going to get the same grade of mushroom if you're growing it in a cheaper medium like that or something that's not as nutrient dense. Um, there's just like, there's so many layers to this. Um, and part of going into the trip, I was nervous about a lot of aspects of it. Partially, I didn't know anybody else on the trip really at first other than one person. And I didn't, um, I, some of the experiences were new, but I kind of went into it going, okay, if, if my kids were doing this, I would tell them, you know, jump in with both feet, enjoy every moment, live it up and experience it fully. And so I made that promise to myself going forward into the trip. I was like, I'm just going to say yes to all the experiences and just do it even if they're slightly terrifying. Um, and so it was a lot of fun stuff like the dog sleds or we got to drive snowmobiles and go ice fishing. Uh, and ironically, I was only two of us caught a fish and we were both parents. So we were joking that it was because we had this like calming energy that like called the fish because we were parents or something, but um, only two of us caught fish. But the food there too is very seasonal. So as you might imagine, it's so cold. Um, it does not unfreeze for months and months. And not only that, it's dark for months and months because they're so far north. Um, They call it the polar winter where there's little to no sunlight each day during the winter. So they don't have even greenhouses where you can grow things without light. And they don't, they can't really farm things in the winter. Even animals, it's too cold for them to produce milk or it's just a completely different climate. And so their version of eating seasonally is so much different than what we might experience here where 
uh, and this was another thing I was like, I'm going to say yes to everything when I get into this. And it was um, reindeer tongue and reindeer heart and pretty much reindeer for every meal. And I was like, mm, okay. Um, so like reindeer and berries, pickles, potatoes, and trout was pretty much the entirety of our diet while we were there. And it was so neat to get to eat those foods in the place where they originally came from. Um, but it also really drove home, like when you don't have access to a grocery store with foods flown in from all over the world, you make do with what you have and you make these amazing ways that it tastes delicious. And they, I mean, they literally have to mix up those five foods for pretty much every meal and they did a great job of it. And so it's really cool to see that. That's amazing. And I feel like there's so much wisdom in that because I know that during the summer they are growing a lot more and they're foraging a lot more and they're eating a lot more greens. And it reminds me that although we do have access to a lot of foods year round, when we... And not that I'm recommending eating four foods all through winter, but when we, I know that every spring I go through like a two to three week period where I literally cannot, I can eat my weight in salad. Like I just can't get enough. And there's something about uh, the switch of seasons that signals my body to sort of pull in all of those greens. And, you know, at first I thought I really, my husband laughed because like one every month, I can't, it's like, I think it's like March-ish. He's just like, what is going on with our grocery bill? And I'm just like, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just ate like a million salads, you know, but there's this wisdom to that. And and so we can incorporate some aspects of that into our life um, throughout the year. And, and there's benefit to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm going through that right now because I think my body's so confused after being for like 10 days in darkness almost the entire time. And then our flight back originally landed in California and it was like all the sunshine. We were all like, it burns, it burns. Like it was so bright. And now I'm craving all the green things. I had like two bunches of cilantro and two bunches of parsley as a pesto for dinner last night. I was like, this is great. This is all I want. I'm going through a parsley thing too. And my husband is laughing. I literally made a parsley salad. We're talking just parsley and lemon and olive oil, a little bit of salt and pepper. And he watched me and I ate it and was like, I'm going to the store and getting more. I don't know why. That's awesome. And it speaks to, because there's so many micronutrients in plants and especially herbs. And if I'm remembering the stat, isn't it that we used to eat like 200 or more types of plants and now most people eat 15 foods, period, not even plants, but just foods of which like corn, wheat, soybeans and potatoes are most of those. Like we've lost so many micronutrients in our diet. And I know that's something that you've also been researching and that you've always done a pretty good job of implementing is getting micronutrients from a variety of plants, not just vegetables, but herbs as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I remember the first time I was staying in a grocery store and I really started understanding like how um, much diversity our ancestors used to eat. And so I looked around and I was like, well, there's like five types of lettuce and, you know, like there's carrots, but they're just different colors. Not that, that that's good. Like that represents different nutrients. But a lot of I was seeing, a lot of what I was seeing was basically like different types of cucumbers, but not huge representative populations of different types of plants. So I started trying to look into ways to incorporate a wider spectrum of plants from all different um, sources. And the thing that I've found the most that's easiest is to make a lot of herbal teas and infusions using all kinds of different herbs. So I have a big cabinet and I have a, a glass pot. Um, it's like an electric tea, tea kettle. And every morning I wake up and I just brew whatever sounds good. Sometimes it's, you know, stinging nettle with peppermint or something else. But I'm trying to pull in those micronutrients every single day, even though it doesn't seem like a significant amount. A lot of times in these cultures, people weren't eating 
you know, massive amounts of a particular thing, but they were seeking it out for its nutritive properties in just small amounts. So that is one thing I found really helpful. And I try to mix it up too by color. So sometimes I'm doing a lot of reds. So one that I really like is Shisandra berry, which I think grows in Siberia and the Arctic Circle. And the reason I know that is because um, when they were hunting, I think reindeer, they used to chew the berries because it actually improved their vision at night. So they went and studied it later and found that it does support vision and it supports stamina. So when you haven't eaten and you're hunting and you haven't succeeded yet, you need something to keep you going. And those those berries were how they did it. Again, growing in those extreme environments, they help us with, you know, perseverance and stamina. And speaking of reindeer, that's another experience we got to have. We got to visit this tribe, the Sami people that have lived there for thousands of years that are known as the reindeer herders. And if you've ever seen in National Geographic or online, they're the ones where you maybe saw like a little child sitting on a reindeer with like this gorgeous fur coat and like their beautiful eyes. And they're a lot of them um, like beautiful blue eyes and blonde hair because they need more vitamin D. They don't get very much vitamin D up there. So they've adapted to more fair features to be able to absorb vitamin D more easily. But it's amazing their interaction with the reindeer. And now they're largely what's um, keeping the reindeer populations up there alive by herding them. And so they were explaining how in the winter they have them on the farms and they are taking care of them. And then in the summer, the reindeer get a vacation and they let them go. And then there's these reindeer herding associations that actually like round them back up each year. So they're getting like, it's a whole new version of free range. Um, But just to see the beauty of these people, like you mentioned hunting, like for them, if they didn't hunt, they didn't eat. It was like very much survival and how they were so amazing at how they used everything. So they would use every part of an animal in making clothing or staying warm or for food. And they would, like a tradition I brought back from them that I love so much, they make these cups called kuksa, which are like a wooden cup. And they're carved out of one piece of solid wood from a curly birch tree. And I think it takes a year, they said, to make them from start to finish because there's, if I'm remembering it, 16 steps that they have to go through of like the sanding and the soaking in coffee and soaking in something else. It's like this whole long process. And then when you get one of these cups, they say that you don't actually own it. You're just borrowing it from your grandchildren because they last so long. And the more you use it from just the oils in your hands, the outside gets this stronger sheen and patina and it literally just gets better with age and from using it for tea and coffee the inside gets this like shine and they had one there that was almost a hundred years old and it was like almost like marble it was so beautiful and to think of all those hundreds of people or whoever had touched it that many times um, and just the beauty of how they use everything and they're so like conscientious about how they interact with the environment and with the resources that they have. Um, we met this girl named Essie, who's part of the tribe, and she makes boots out of reindeer fur. And even the bottom is fur. You only wear them in snow. And it takes her five days to make one pair of boots. And that's like her purpose in this tribe. And that's what she does is to make boots and these special wool shawls that they have. But they still largely make their um, these traditional Sami outfits that are beautiful. They have like reds and yellows and blues and then elements of reindeer and leather. Um, just it's so beautiful to see that culture and how they've tried to really like hold on to and also reawaken that culture in modern times because it's so easy for these societies, indigenous societies, to lose part of that as the modern world comes in. And they've really worked hard to keep the beauty of their culture. And it was amazing to see that. I saw those cups as soon as I walked in and they are stunning. Like they're so beautiful. I don't know that this is the right word, but they just, they feel almost alive. Like they have, there's a the shape of them. They're so, they have like a movement to them and they're so, they're just beautiful, captivating. What are they called? Kooksy? 
Kuxa. Kuxa. Yeah. And <laughs> okay, that sounds better. <laughs> and that was the one thing I brought back souvenirs. I actually donated a couple pieces of clothes so that I'd have room in my suitcase to bring back one of these cups for each of my kids to make a family tradition. I know we've talked many times on this podcast about experiences instead of just gifts. And to me, that was something of the culture that I could bring back that was a reminder of being a good steward of our resources and making time for things that take time and slow time together with family. And um, so that's one of our family rituals now is we'll drink either in the morning tea out of it, like mushroom tea from Four Sigmatic or hot chocolate at night or whatever it is out of those cups and then hang them back on these little hooks on the wall. And it's just a fun family bonding activity. That's awesome. Speaking of kids, I know that Finland does some things differently when it comes to culture with kids. So can you tell us what you observed while you were there? For sure. I wish I could have teleported some people from here to there to see it because I have gotten scolded by um, elderly people where we live for letting my kids play outside barefoot when it's cold. And by cold, I mean 55 degrees. And these kids were out playing not barefoot, but in negative 20, negative 30 degree temperatures for hours. And they were loving it. And you hear the stories from different parts of the world, how it might be Denmark and Sweden or Finland, maybe where they put the babies in these like little bassinet strollers wrapped up in a blanket warm and then they leave them outside while the moms go in the coffee shop and drink coffee or tea or whatever and the babies get all this extra amazing brown fat and it's great for their brain development and their immune systems are super strong Um, I think we're just maybe like afraid of extremes like anything that seems hard we're afraid to let our kids experience but the beauty of what I saw in the Finnish education system, and I kept asking the people who were there from Finland questions about the education system and how they teach kids. And it was so really, it was so fascinating to see that. And also to note before I start talking about it, Finland does really well on standardized, like on testing, as far as like looking at worldwide education levels, like they test really well compared to other countries. And they're also happy. So that's a really important distinction is you have happy kids who are also smart, who are also fully functioning adults who have careers that make them happy and are successful. So those are all metrics we want for our kids. So it's asking a lot of questions of how they foster that in in the education system and in their families. And what was really interesting is they do less school, less homework, more play, and they're better at it, like all of the things they're better at. Um, So whereas in the U.S., kids might have to be at school at 7.30 or 8 in the morning, they don't usually start till 9 or 9.45, and they finish by 2 or 2.45. During that time, they might only have a few classes, even at the higher grades, but they'll have a couple, like two or three or four recesses or times outside. And we went for a walk when we first landed in Helsinki before we took the little flight up north. And we saw multiple classes, including preschoolers, playing outside, sledding down hills for hours. And us as like Americans who are used to the sun, we were like, oh, my gosh, it's so cold. Those poor kids. They didn't look cold at all. They were just loving the snow, getting so much exercise, literally running in a dead sprint up this steep hill so they could sled back down it again and just like blissfully happy. And it made me realize, like, I feel like kids have that such an innate need for play. And so do adults. And we've lost that. Um, That was actually another one of the lessons personally for me on the trip was remembering what it's like to play. Um, One of the people on the trip is a competitor in American Ninja Warrior. But his mission is that he wants to remind people that humans, even as adults, we need play. And so it was the first time I had really like thought about that as an adult, like we exercise or we work and we do all these things, but we don't do things because they're fun as much anymore. Yeah, we turned our play back into work somehow, you know, like we're supposed to get out, run around and have a good time. But instead, we figured out a way to like mechanize it and make it 
not as fun. But I mean, not not to say that I don't love working out or that there aren't times when that's helpful because sometimes you just fit it into your routine when you know you can. And those endorphins do make you feel better. But um, I get what you're saying because... You know, I used to equate play as like I had to sit on the ground every day and play Legos with my kids. Like, and for me, that's not actually a thing that I really enjoy. I'm just going to say that very honestly. So rediscovering what play looks like as an adult is just not it's not the easiest thing. Like you don't just know what makes you happy because it's definitely not playing Legos, even if that was what made you happy when you were a kid. Um, But it's worth it trying to find out. And I'm sort of in that path, too, of trying to figure that out. Yeah, I think for me, it was a unique thing because I had made that thing of I'm going to say yes to anything that comes up. And and also seeing people like Travis on the trip, who was the that's what he does is teaches people to play. And everywhere we went, he's like, oh, I bet I could do a handstand on that. And that's as an adult, something I've never thought to myself. Like I've never looked at like a four foot tower and be like, oh, I bet I could do a handstand on that. Like it would never, I would never think of that at all. But to see how much fun that was. And it became this like running joke on the trip of like, could he do a handstand on a moving sled? Could he do a handstand on a reindeer? Could he do a handstand on top of me? And he did like all of these things. (laughs) He literally could do a handstand on top of anything, but he had so much fun. Or it was, could he backflip? off the bridge, which he did, or could he backflip off of, you know, this huge pile of snow, which he did, or the or the snowmobile. Um, but just to see like adults can actually find their thing and have fun. So since then, we're going to put in a sort of American Ninja Warrior themed treehouse in our backyard. So stay tuned for the plans for that on the vlog eventually. Um, but just because I want my kids to not lose that. Like it's something I'm now, I was like, I bet I could do a handstand. It is in fact harder than it looks. Um, but I was like, I'm going to learn how to do that. I don't want my kids to lose that. So it was a good reminder to keep play in for our kids. I totally agree. And I think the more we learn about the vestibular system and how it's in, in it's connected to both our emotional and our intellectual processing abilities, um, I think there's value there. And I, one of the sad things is often we remove things without realizing that we're taking away a functional aspect of who we are. So we often like we put play in a category as not important when in fact it totally is. It's a lot like community in that the effects compound over time. So like you don't spend one day with your friend and been, and then you're like, you know what? I made this healthy choice and I'm good for life, you know? But those who do spend consistent time and they form those ties, they have longer, healthier lives. And I think people... As I'm learning to become more physically active and like I like to swim and dive and, and you know, there's other things that can develop vestibular. I actually daily um, balance on one foot and close my eyes because that really sh- that challenges your vestibular system if you're like me and you haven't activated it for many years. So that's what I do. I switch sides and close my eyes because you, if you can balance on your foot with your eyes open, that's awesome. And I can, too. And then I close my eyes and then I'm like hopping all over my floor. My my children like stand and watch and laugh. Um, um, but I can I can do it for quite a while with only minimal hopping um, sometimes. But yeah, I just think that we sometimes take things away before realizing uh, that they have these functional benefits that we just haven't identified yet. Yeah, I think you put that so well. And so that was one of the big lessons I definitely took with me was to find ways to play. And it's been fun to kind of re relearn that as a grown up and find what those things are. Cause like you said, I'm not the Lego playing on the floor person either. Um, but it's fun to like go outside and play or to find things that are playful and fun for you as an adult, which is going to be totally different than when you're a kid. This episode is brought to you by kettle and fire bone broth and soups. I have used these products for years and I always keep my pantry well stocked. They have chicken bone broth, 
beef bone broth and a new chicken mushroom bone broth, which is delicious. Those are all great as a base for soups or even just sipped on their own. But Kettle and Fire also now has tomato, butternut, and miso soups, which are often incorporated as part of a meal in our house. Their newest products are a grass-fed chili and a Thai chicken soup. These are great meals all on their own, and they make last-minute dinner so easy at my house. Their broths are made from grass-fed and pastured animal bones, and they're a great source of collagen and amino acids like proline and glycine. I incorporate collagen in some form every day, and Kettle and Fire makes it super tasty to do this. You can learn more. Go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama20 to save 20% on your order. So again, Kettle and Fire, all spelled out K-E-T-T-L-E-A-N-D-F-I-R-E.com forward slash wellnessmama and make sure to use the code wellnessmama20 to save 20%. This podcast is brought to you by the best CBD I have ever tried, and the one that I feel is truly the best out there. It's called Ojai Energetics, spelled O-J-A-I, Energetics, and here's why it's awesome. First of all, it is over 20 times more absorbable than most CBD, which makes it an incredible value. Over 99% of Ojai CBD gets where it needs to go in your body because of their patented colloidal technology, which is not liposomal like 90% of the CBD on the market. And in fact, 90% of the CBD in these liposomal oils don't even make it past the gut and liver and into the blood. This is called the first pass effect. Then 90% of the CBD that does make it through isn't in the right form to be available to the cells that need it. Ojai solves this problem with their colloidal system. I was skeptical and I have to tell you the first time I tried it, I felt a noticeable, like very noticeable effect in about 15 seconds, which is so much faster than the 20 to 30 minutes with other brands I've used. So now, whenever I feel any stress or anxiety or have trouble sleeping, I use it and solve that problem in under 20 seconds. Their CBD is derived from completely organic ingredients and it's batch tested by third-party vendors, which is important for heavy metals, VOCs, pesticides, herbicides, microbes, and to verify the content of terpenes and cannabinoids. Because this version absorbs faster, you can also know if you're getting the right dose because taking too much CBD is not a good thing either. Here's how. Because Ojai works so rapidly, it causes your body's cannabinoid receptors in the tongue to modulate. Big words, but what this means is that the CBD will taste bitter when your body needs more CBD, but will change to sweet when you've had enough. So to test it, all you have to do is take only a quarter of a dropper, wait 30 seconds, and then feel on your tongue if you taste bitter or sweet. If it tastes bitter, you just repeat until you get a sweet, almost honey-like taste. Ojai is also a certified B Corp, which means they operate their servers off of wind power, they use completely recyclable packaging, they work to build direct relationships with the farmers who grow the ingredients they use, which ensures fair trade wages, and they support regenerative, regenerative farming practices. Find out more about them and their mission and get a special gift with your order by going to ohienergetics.com forward slash wellnessmama. So again, O-J-A-I energetics.com forward slash wellnessmama. Also with their, in their school system, so they don't do standardized tests. So they're not teaching kids for a test. And they're very focused on individualized education. Um, even from a young age, they would identify learning styles or strengths in kids and then nurture those in more individualized ways. And they would have smaller class sizes and 
they would stay with teachers longer so the teacher could like really focus on the development with the kids. Um, and also I found out from them that teachers are so prized in Finland. So in the U.S., I feel like we underpay teachers, we undervalue teachers, and they work so hard. And like we'll pay doctors so much money, which they also do wonderful things a lot of times. But the people who are literally forming our children's brains, we underpay and overwork. And in Finland, it's so different. Um, to be a teacher there is like a highly respected position. And I think I what they said is like only 10% of people who apply get accepted as teachers and they, most of them have master's degrees or more and they're so passionate about what they do and they're so respected in society because they realize they're doing such important work. So it's just a completely different paradigm there compared to like, you're going to sit in a desk all day and learn these facts. It's much more, we're going to find a way with your individual learning style and what you need to nurture you into the best person that we can for our country. And it's just, it's amazing to see the businesses that are coming out of Finland and how much they're really like showing up on a global arena. And I think a lot of it probably goes back to the education system. We can learn a lot from that. That's amazing and definitely food for thought. I know there are a couple of maybe books out all along those lines or maybe some research. I would love to learn more about what they're doing specifically and and how they're like how they're identifying that in children because that is really cool. I cannot let you get away from this podcast without talking about saunas though. <laughs> because you, we're obsessed with saunas. We're not in a sauna today. We're actually hanging out in your closet. But, you know, most of the time we do record in the sauna. And I want to know what it was like in like one of the traditional saunas that, that they have there. Absolutely. In fact, I will, I'm going to get probably pretty vulnerable with this part. I did a little bit on Instagram, but this, for us, this was the last full day at the very end of the full day that we, we were going to do the sauna. And we had the schedule from the beginning. So I knew when it was going to happen and I knew it was coming. And it was probably the thing I was the most scared about. I had made this whole, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to do it. Um, and we have a cold tub at our house and we have a sauna at our house. So it's not like I hadn't sort of trained for these things before. But because of that, I also knew like our cold plunge, the coldest it gets was 36 degrees. And that's pretty brutal. And it's still water. And this cold plunge was essentially in Arctic water that was moving. There's like a river that's connected to the Arctic Ocean. They cut a hole in it so that you can get in it. And it's still moving pretty quickly. And it's like 20 degrees. And the only reason it's not frozen is because it's moving. And the air outside is negative 25 degrees. So you don't even get to get warm when you get out until you get to the sauna. And so you're the, it's a traditional smoke sauna, the one that we went in. A fun fact about Finland, they have over half as many saunas as people. So pretty much everywhere you go, you have access to a sauna, which I totally get because when your bones are literally chilled to the bone all the time, that's like the only place you can really get warm. Um, and also probably is amazing for their immune systems, just the hot, cold and the adaptability. Um, so they have two types. You can, they do actually have infrared saunas now there as well, but they had these traditional saunas that were like electrical heated, um, which is similar to the barrel sauna we have. And then they also had smoke saunas. And the best I can describe this, it was like a log cabin that was two stories. It was pretty big. And on the bottom floor is like the biggest wood stove I'd ever seen. Like at least probably five times as big as an oven, like a stove oven that you would see in the US, but all wood burning for the smoke. And then on top of it were all of these rocks. So kind of how you would see rocks in a sauna, um, but just a huge, like much bigger scale. And it was vented outside with the chimney so you're not inhaling the smoke. And then, of course, because heat rises, you can't just sit on the ground floor. There's a second story to this cabin where you go up there and you're like sandwiched between all of these people. And for us, it was like a bunch of really sweet older Finnish guys and a bunch of Japanese women who were visiting. Um, and it was just a really fun dynamic in the sauna. 
And so we started there and I knew the cold was coming and I was like dreading it. I was like, I wonder how hot I can get. And I just kept sitting there and sitting there and sitting there until my heart rate got really, really high. And I was like, dang it, I'm going to have to get in the cold water. Um, and so once you get out of the sauna, you have to then walk. I don't even know how far it was, like probably 30, 40 feet to the cold. Then you have to walk into the cold. And then afterwards you have to walk back, but you're now cold. So the railing you touch, it's like licking a fire pole. Like you stick to it, your feet start freezing to the ground. And then there's like kind of a stampede of people who want to get back in the sauna. Um, so I like, I knew it was coming. And as I talked about a little bit on Instagram, for me, the toughest part was also um, so many people on this trip, like I mentioned, were like, in the fitness world or UFC fighters or whoever that are very much like in the fitness world. So they kind of like looked like models. Like they had eight or 12 packs or however they count those. I don't know. Um, but I was like, my stomach has had six kids and has C-section scars and stretch marks. And I do not look like that. And I definitely was being really hard on myself um, and like judging myself in anticipation of how I thought I was going to be judged by others. And that was actually, ironically, the part that I was the most scared about. Like in hindsight, it was really um, like enlightening to look and be like, I was more scared about walking in a swimsuit in front of people 30 feet than I was about getting in 20 degree water. Like that's messed up. But that's what women do. That's what we do to ourselves. We judge ourselves so harshly. And so I had committed that I was going to do this. And they said, it's good if you can do it at least three times and it's best to finish with the cold. So that way your, um, like your lymphatic system and everything just stays ramped up. So I was like, okay, I'm going to say yes to doing it three times. I don't know how long I'm going to make it, but I'm going to get in the water at least three times. Um, the first time I went in with a couple of the other girls and I was like, oh, heck no, 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 no. And I got right back out <laughs> and then went back in the sauna. And then the second time I was like, OK, I think I can do this a little longer. And I stayed probably like 20 or 25 seconds. And then back in the sauna, the girls had mostly gone back into change. And so it was just the guys left. And I had seen even some of the guys only last like 10 seconds and my competitiveness kind of kicked in because I was like, okay, that was bad, but that was not labor bad. And I have had labor a lot and I did that for like 24 hours. I can do this for a little longer than 20 seconds. And so um, one of the guys and I stayed in for a minute and that was like, that was a big victory for me. Not just um, that I lasted as long as the guys in that cold, but also that I, wait, what did you just say? How long did you stay in? a minute on the last time. Oh my gosh. And it was, I mean, it was when I got out, my skin was hot pink because of the, like the hot, cold, hot, cold. Um, and I don't think I've ever shivered quite so hard, but then they're so right when they talk about the contrast therapy and what it does for your brain. It was like someone had turned on a light switch in my head and I was just like, whoa, hello, brain cells I haven't seen in a while. Like so much mental focus and so much clarity. Does it increase BDNF? I know that sauna does, but does the, the alternating also? Yeah, it said too. And I think, um, sorry, that was nerd to speak for brain derived neurotrophic. I can't say it, neurotrophic factor. And it makes you smart. <laughs> oh, yeah, we probably should define these terms. Oh, we have to start throwing around random acronyms and no one will know what we're talking about. Um, it does. And I think there's, like, when we look at the research, there's separate benefits of the cold and also of the heat. And then separate benefits when you combine them. So I think if you're making this part of a daily practice, it's good to sometimes just get cold, sometimes just get hot, and sometimes go back and forth. And that's what we've kind of done in our house. But now after, after Finland, I'm like, oh man, our cold plunge only gets down to 36 degrees. It's not really that cold. Um, although our sauna gets pretty hot. So I guess that's pretty comparable. But that was, it was like a surprising victory for me and um, to get even a little bit more vulnerable. So they, um, if you read the book, Santa Soul Shrooms that Tara wrote, it's basically about how a lot of the traditions uh, in 
that we associate with Santa Claus go back pre-St. Nicholas to the Sami people and to their kind of like medicine man, how he would dress like that. He would come down the chimney because that was the only way to get into the hut once there's 12 feet of snow, um, how they would hang these red and white mushrooms on trees to dry them and they look like ornaments and just all of these cool tie-ins. And the trees were inside the house because they needed it for vitamin C, right? Is that what I'm remembering you told me? Yeah, they would bring the tree, they, they would bring a whole evergreen tree into the house with these mushrooms hanging on it. And these mushrooms are also technically considered psychedelic, but not in the same sense that I guess like certain psychedelics would just be considered fun. Like the medicine men, they had a lot of respect for these and they would use them as part of their like ceremonial rites and different things um, because they felt, felt like you could learn about a lot about yourself or about human nature or whatever through the use of these in a very respected way. And just like other aspects of their culture, I felt like they didn't, whereas in America, sometimes I think people get into these things for party. They, this is this was not at all what it was for them. It was very much a plant that they respected, but were cautious of. Isn't that kind of too like how we see different traditions, like in certain blue zones, there's a lot of respect for the people drink wine, which does alter your mental status. But we're talking about in respectful, small doses, nobody's going crazy. They're not throwing giant parties, if that makes sense. Um, it's a totally different vibe than way over consuming something which would be harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the irony of the whole experience was um, that night. So these mushrooms, the Amanita muscaria is what they're called. They're the Santa Claus mushrooms. If you've seen the mushroom emoji, it's like the red with white spots mushroom. That's what it is. Or like on Mario, that's exactly where it comes from. And they're technically psychedelic and they're found there. Um, this is definitely one as a caveat, you should never try to harvest yourself no matter what, because there's one that looks just like it that will kill you instantly. But I knew that that night we would also get the chance to try those in a very small dose if we wanted to. But he had explained, like, the reason that these are legal here is because no one does them for fun. Like, they're not a party thing. Like, they're not gonna, you're not going to have, like, a fun, happy experience. It's like you'll face all of your inner demons. You might face the idea of death. Like, it's it's going to be hard and awful and terrible and whatever. And I was more scared about walking in a swimsuit for 30 feet than I was about, like, facing death. Like, literally in my head, I was like, okay, I just have to get through this cold water and swimsuit thing so that I can face death. Like, <laughs> and it really, like, it made me realize, wow, like, women are were so, at least for me, I'm so hard on myself. And maybe I should just start respecting my body for what it can do and not what it does or does not look like. And I just, that was just really enlightening for me. And it was also interesting just to be able to try something like that in a small dose. We didn't feel any psychedelic effect whatsoever, but just to try that in a place where it originated and where there's such a respect for it. And it was a good um, lesson in how plants can have a profound impact on people and how they should be respected and how small amounts, just like we were talking about with the herbs, can have a really profound impact on our body. Um, that's something that I thought about a lot there as well of I feel like so often we underestimate the power of herbs or adaptogens or these or like non-psychedelic, any mushroom in small amounts to affect our psyche or to affect our body in a positive way. But yet we don't underestimate how a Motrin could take away our headache. And it's so tiny. It's an equally small amount. And we give all this credit to pharmaceuticals for what they can do. And we trust that they're going to have an effect. And we ignore that maybe such a small amount of an herb or a plant could also have a really beneficial effect on the body as well. Yeah. And I think, too, it's interesting because we talked earlier about how there's so many 
um, mushroom derivatives in pharmaceuticals. So there's definitely a precedent there. And and not to get too far off track, but I know that the I, the concept of psychedelics is really like for me, this is not a conversation I ever expected to be having. But I have read some really amazing research in the last couple of years coming out about other types of mushrooms that are being used in clinical settings in the U.S. Uh, for studying effects on things like PTSD that are not responding to any other treatments. And we're talking about tiny doses that have therapeutic and life-changing effects for people. And we're not talking about like they need to have these medicines like daily. We're talking about one or two doses that can have a life-changing impact on people who are suffering from PTSD. So there is something to that. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a conversation that will become more prominent in the next few years. I know even Denver has put one of those types of mushrooms on the ballot as to decriminalize. But it just it really struck me seeing a culture that has been traditionally using plants both for food, for medicine and for like this way to improve yourself for so many years and that had such a respect for it. Um, And it wouldn't they just looked at it so differently. And then to come to the U.S. where certain plants are actually illegal, but then there are drugs that literally can kill you that are considered safer than those plants. It was just really striking that we would put trust in something so man-made, but also at the same time ignore that something like parsley or whatever it may be could have such a profound effect on the body. And not to switch too many gears, but I wanted to go back to one thing I learned while you were away, felt relevant, is that even in Finland, they prioritize these saunas so much for health and for well-being that they're literally everywhere, including in prisons. Like it's part of their culture that is ingrained that much. I just thought that was so interesting. And even community saunas, um, the part of the group, I wasn't there for this part, but they, um, the first night they got in, they had a layover and they wanted to find a sauna. And there are like huge group saunas where you can go that are really nice, but there's also like community saunas, just like we would have a park, like a community park. And there were apparently like two saunas outside, kind of like by a construction site in the middle of nowhere. People could just go and use the saunas. They're just there for anyone because uh, it's such an important part of their culture. And um, that was just, it was so striking for Americans to get to see that. And uh, they were like, literally people just like stand out there, um, like you undress, get in the sauna, and then you just like get back dressed in the snow and go on your way. So for people who want to have their own mini finish experience here uh, where we live, um, I'm thinking that it would just be fun to mention a couple of things. One is that there are a lot of places now where you can find a sauna like you can just go to. Uh, there's sometimes in gyms, but then they're actually having they have studios now that offer sauna therapies. So take a friend and go. Um, and another thing is if you want to, I mean, I can't offer you ice. What is it? Polar ice water, <laughs> Arctic ice water. <laughs> I'm not sure. But they have cryotherapy. And a lot of the bigger cities now have that uh, where you can go and stand. It's like, what, negative 20? We've done that before. Not, and it's not, it's nothing, is it, compared to like getting in the water? Don't tell me that. Let's just let me, let me live with my victory. Okay. But yeah, like there's some ways that we could have a mini finish experience. Or is there anything else you would recommend from a communal aspect of someone who wanted to plan like a mini finish day they could do uh, just with a friend that would sort of replicate some of your favorite takeaways? Yeah, that's a great point. I think you could do um, the hot cold, even if it was like just ice in your bathtub and a sauna or um, like you said, there's community saunas or more and more, even in the U.S., people are putting saunas in their homes, whether it be portable saunas or even just like built-in saunas, like you and I both have saunas because that was a priority for our family. And I think that like the mushroom aspect of Enforcingmatic has all of those, but you can also get mushrooms at the grocery store. But I think that's a big part of their culture. And my favorites are like reishi and chaga are two of my 
hands down favorites. Chaga is super high in antioxidants. It's actually the most antioxidant rich substance on the planet, gram for gram. And um, it makes really delicious elixir tea when you just mix it with water. Um, Same with reishi really helps with sleep. And um, another interesting aspect I forgot to touch on earlier too is the light aspect. So you and I have both written about the importance of light for circadian rhythm and why it's good to like go outside in the morning and get sunshine to like signal to your body that it's morning to keep your cortisol rhythm correct. Um, Well, Finland has an interesting challenge with this, especially the northern regions, because in the summer they have like a lot of sun, like 20 plus hours of sun. And in the winter, they have little to no sunlight at all. And so when we were there, it was called the polar winter. And it was basically like an hour of sunrise and then an hour of sunset. And that was it. And um, so they've had to get creative in the way that they adapt to that. So most of us are lucky. We can just get sunshine daily. Even in the winter, we can get sunlight and get get our eyes exposed to sunlight. Um, They are really good about using things like blackout curtains. They talked about in the summer, in order to sleep, they would have to use blackout curtains in their rooms. And they kind of like think like pioneered places where it's a requirement, like Alaska, Finland, et cetera. They've had to do these things. Whereas for us, that's great to do. But for them, that's is a necessity. And then um, similarly in the winter, they would have to get light exposure somehow. So in a lot of the community places where there was a sauna, we would also see what they called the solarium, which was like a vitamin D lamp, basically. So it was light and vitamin D. Or they out of Finland came the company, the Human Charger which basically shines light in your ears, which is another signaling method that it's daylight. And so they really understand and have figured out how to tune into the importance of light for your circadian rhythm and even how to adapt that in a place where you're not going to get it from the sun. And I think that's another thing we could take from Finland is to get enough daylight, to make that a priority in our morning. So maybe drink some mushroom tea or coffee outside instead of inside. Um, They say that even just exposure on a cloudy day is so many thousands of times brighter than the bulbs inside, just different spectrums of light. Um, Or use one of those 10,000 lux plus lights in the morning just to signal your body that it's actually daytime. And that was another cool lesson that they were much better about than we are. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad we got to catch up. And now I want to go look at those mugs again. Absolutely. And all the things we mentioned, we'll link to the saunas and the mushroom tea and all that if you guys want to recreate Finland. Um, And also just a huge shout out and thank you to Four Sigmatic for really shining light on the culture and letting us learn lessons from that. Um, That's such a core value. I know for both of our families, I just I feel like you can learn something from every experience and every person, but especially from every culture. And it was so beautiful and life changing to get to see that one. And as always, thanks to all of you guys for listening and for joining us and sharing your time with us. We don't take that lightly. We're very grateful and honored that you chose to spend time with us. And I hope that you'll join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.